You're listening to the best of the TomBernardShow.com, brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Who, me? <laughs> well, I'd like to know if I was married to a horror piece of shit. <laughs> you could just look at her license. My. Special stripe. That was amazing. Oh, my gosh. Coming by sweet corn, potatoes, onions, pickles. It's not how you use them, sir. <laughs> it's really sickening that anybody would be into radio this much. It is ungoddamn believable. I think I'm going to hell. I just realized it. Thank you, Tom. You're just delicious. This is why I drink. We're here today with Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant. Michael, what's going on? You know, we keep getting phone calls, and it's interesting because people try to handle a lot of stuff on their own, or they try to talk to the adjusters, or they wait, um, and they think maybe it'll cost them money if they talk to me. And, you know, we tell them it's free to talk to us. Um, I go through what their rights are, and, you know, we try to help them as best we can. We don't sign everyone up. Sometimes I just give them advice, and they go from there and then call us back later. But the key is is that they don't know all their rights or they're not told all their rights by the adjuster. And that's one of the things we try to make sure that they get, you know, they get that understanding uh, so they can help themselves and their families the best they can. And the number is? Is 800 or at the website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Brad, Sean, Bryant, Michael Bryant, thank you. Seeking justice for the injured, Brad, Sean, Bryant. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Bradshaw and Bryant. Kicking off the show this week, we had Wilfred Riley on the program, talking about race relations in America today. Next on the Best of... Wilfred's ready to go. Wilfred Riley. The book is called Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Wilfred, it's pretty interesting just watching the news. And and, uh, I don't know what to tell you about the situation in America right now. I look back because I I grew up in in the city and I grew up in a a mixed race neighborhood. And I didn't have any problems with it whatsoever. But apparently we've all had horrendous problems forever. And they're, they're only getting worse rather than better. And I don't really, I don't believe that. I just don't believe it. What do you think, Wilfred? Well, that's good because it's not. Well, yeah, it's good. It's good you don't believe that because it's not true. Uh, so, good. why did why why do you hear it so much? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, as, as you mentioned, I wrote the book "Hate Crime Hoax," and the book has a pretty simple theme. Um, most of the sort of widely reported recent hate crimes that we've heard about in the media, whether you're talking about Jussie Smollett who apparently paid uh, two Nigerian pro-bodybuilders to beat him up. Uh, Covington Catholic, a little before that, where the claim was that this group of kind of prep school athletes had surrounded this Native American Indian elder. They chanted, build the wall. They tried to take his people's sacred drum. Going back through Duke Lacrosse, uh, University of Virginia, where the claim was that the fraternities were running these anti-women rape rings. Uh, Kean College with the death threats, Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses. What I found doing research about a year or two ago, and what I break down in the book, is that all of those turned out to be completely false. And they were fakes. They were hoaxes. And I think that ties into the question you asked, which is, is there a lot of ethnic conflict? And no, I'm from the south side of Chicago. I'm from Bridgeport, which is a black and Irish American sure. neighborhood. And the experience yep. that most people have in day-to-day life is... There's not a massive amount of racial conflict. The USA is not an incredibly hate-filled country. So one of the things I look at is why there's such a disconnect between the reality most people experience, where 30% of marriages are mixed across racial or religious lines, and kind of the perception we see in the media, where there are black and white guys fighting in the street with sticks, and kids are being kidnapped, and sharks are attacking people. And the answer is that a lot of the stuff in the mainstream media is simply made up. Um, many of the incidents involved, if you look at literally the 10 I uh, hate hoaxes I just ran through, never happened. 
If they did happen, if you look at the Black Lives Matter cases, they are wildly exaggerated. The stories that we hear, hands up, don't shoot, really don't have much, if any, resemblance to what actually happened. And I think that in addition to the you know, rampant left-wing bias of the media, there's also a bias that's probably worse towards sensationalism. What yes. gets people clicking? Yes. What gets yes. people nervous? What gets people buying big trucks and Viagra pills? And that's not reality. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be the answer afraid. would be country girls. You got a point there. Yeah. Wilfred, why do you think it is that people want to believe there's racial strife in America? Look, it's never been perfect, obviously. And, and 100 years ago, 150 years ago now, I guess it, it would be more than that. Um, it was horrible. But the rest of the world is still horrible. But we're yeah, look, there's slavery existing everywhere in the world except for Canada, the United States of America, Western Europe, and Australia. Pretty much everywhere else, there still is slavery, but somehow the United States is the worst offender of all time. I don't look, it should never have happened, don't get me wrong. But again, the Spanish brought the slaves to this area. The the honkies didn't. I don't know. Look, I, I just don't understand why we have to hate ourselves the way we do. Why do we do that? Well, I think there I think there are two different things there. First of all, I, I don't know how many first world countries in Brazil, you know, still have slavery. But yeah, the USA, greatest country in the world. Uh, I do think that in, uh, the reason I was comfortable with a partisan subtitle for my book, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, is mm-hmm. that I think there's a very conscious attempt to sell this narrative to regular Americans. So one of the lines I always use when I debate or when I do a TV appearance is, in the USA, the demand for bigots greatly exceeds the supply. Um, if you actually, <laughs> if you actually ask people, would you, would you, thanks, if you actually ask people, would you date someone attractive of another race? Would you object to having normal middle-class neighbors that happen to be Mexican-American? Less than one in ten uh, whites, less than one in seven blacks or Asians tests as a racist. But the idea that there is massive racial conflict in the USA, if you look at it, is really the justifier for a huge chunk of society. Whether that's affirmative action programs, which have been in place since 1967, minority set-asides, some of the things the alt-right claims on the white side of the fence. But I think most prominently, the budgets for these very massive activist groups. So um, researching the book, I found out that the Southern Poverty Law Center's endowment, not their budget, just the amount that they specifically invest in the market that they have and hold, is uh, $432 million dollars. Uh, I teach at a state university, and they have more money than my college. And that is one of a group of organizations ranging from the old-school, quote-unquote, civil rights groups, Al Sharpton's National Action Network, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, kind of doing the greatest hits here, but newer groups, Antifa, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, large fringe groups, Nation of Islam. What unifies all these groups and gets their leaders very much paid is the idea that the old wars never ended. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, yeah. I would agree with you that the old wars are over. I mean, when you say a lot of this happened 100 years ago, the USA desegregated around the time we beat Hitler, uh, 1945, 46, right. and 1954 right. for Brown v. Board of Education. So, yeah, I think that the reality most people perceive when they watch a baseball game, that everyone seems to be sort of out there together, that's pretty close to reality. There are a few things we have to work on, but the idea that there's a massive conflict is something that's being promoted by people that have a financial incentive in that. And I think I demonstrate that in the book, Hate Crime Hoax. No, I think you do, absolutely. But aren't you up against, I mean, okay, so no matter how many statistics you have proving that the mainstream media narrative is wrong, people still believe what they say and they'll they'll wrestle you to, you know, to, down to the mat to prove that it, it's right. So what do you do? Well, I mean, you can make some jokes like I actually was a wrestler in the past. I mean, fight, I guess. But um, <laughs> more seriously, I, I do think there's an old line from Sammy Clemens, Mark Twain, um, where he said it's very tough to fight people that buy ink by the barrel. And he was referring to a lawsuit he was involved in with a newspaper. But I, I do think the media still has that power today. Um, so things that are absolutely not reality, like in 2015, the year Black Lives Matter began, the total number of unarmed African Americans that were shot by police officers was 17. This, frankly, wasn't a story. Every single one of those cases was made into national news for political reasons. 
Um, it's worth noting, by the way, that there were more than a thousand people in total shot by cops. Seventy-eight uh, percent of them were white, or whites, or Caucasian, Hispanics, and all those cases simply did not appear in the narrative. That's how a narrative is created. But I also think that a lot of people suspect that this isn't real. Uh, if you just look at the comment sections under any mainstream news story, you look at social media. I, I think you guys in talk radio have done a good job at this. I mean, I think most Americans realize that a lot of things they're told. The country's at war, racial conflict is everywhere. For that matter, sharks are attacking people, are just BS. So when I published the book, the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. Um, oh, that's good. I mean, I teach... Yeah, I teach at a primarily black institution, actually, but it's a fairly conservative right. southern school. And the reaction from most of our executives here was like, well, yeah, I mean, I suspected that was true. The, the people involved in these cases don't seem to be, the phrase I often heard was brothers with jobs. They seem to be white kids with feathers in their hair. Like, we've been very skeptical of a lot of these cases. So I think that there's, people are massively receptive to the idea that what corporate media tells them is not true. And I think now with less traditional media, you're seeing more people go around that. For that matter, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders communicate with their fan bases primarily by Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, they absolutely do. Uh, Wilfred, I will tell you something. I, I was uh, a very young teen boy when Martin Luther King Jr. said, do not judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It struck home with me. It's my favorite saying of all time. I admired the hell out of Martin Luther King Jr. He's been one of my heroes. And that never comes up anymore. Nobody, not white people, not black people, nobody references Martin Luther King making that brilliant statement because there's no money in it, I guess. Well, I think that uh, white conservatives sometimes do. Um, I've heard that a fair amount from coaches when I was involved in athletics or from people in the okay. business world. Okay. I, I, I do think that, and I guess black conservatives as well. I mean, Tom Soule idolizes Martin Luther King. I do think that on the activist left, again, because the justification for social programs that tend to benefit the activist left is the old wars never ended, if I could put that in a sentence. I do think yeah. you've seen a very strong attempt to redefine some of these ideas, like what racism is. So, I mean, if you ask the ordinary person on the street, what is racism, they would say, well, I guess that's hating someone of a different race. And that's pretty close to the technical definition, which is dislike based on the belief that another race is inferior. If you talk to an activist today, that's not what they mean by racism. What they mean is these sort of vague ideas like white privilege, which is the concept that by virtue of being white, you can't measure it, but you have some kind of advantage that I don't. Um, I've never really seen that lower any of my white buddies' bills checking out of a store or anything, but the idea is that it's there. You can't identify it, but whiteness need to be aware of it. Uh, there's cultural appropriation, which is the idea that, for example, as an upper-middle-class black guy, because I do Asian martial arts, I'm stealing something from another group of people. Right. Um, there's the idea of subtle prejudice, institutional prejudice. So if you're talking to someone about these issues of race, especially on the left, they don't generally mean that they're targeting those who hate members of other racial groups. And I think that's because so few people openly do. Yeah. Yeah, I think they will. So I, well, basically, to, an, that, to answer the question, yeah, oh yeah, t completely, thank God for that. But I think to answer your question, because there's a bit of a ramble there at the end for me, that's why Dr. No, King no, isn't like referenced as much. The, the ancient enemy he fought is, to some large extent, gone. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But I still, when a guy gives it, he knew he was going to get assassinated. He talked about it quite often, actually, toward yeah. the end of his life. And to ignore him now, yeah, uh, during his birthday and a couple other times, you know, April 4th, obviously coming up in two weeks, he'll be brought up because uh, on April 4th, uh, and even at, at that, uh, you two got the time of the day wrong. They said early morning, April 4th, and that's not when it happened. Mm. But, you know, put the song out anyway. But I just, why you don't use that thing? Do not judge me by the color of my skin, the content of my character. So in other words, I don't care what, what color your skin is. If you're a jerk, you're a jerk, and I want nothing to do with you. And if you're a good person, I really enjoy that. What's wrong with that? Well, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that the reason that Dr. King's idea of colorblindness is less often referenced these days is that to some extent it's been achieved. So people that yeah. are racial activists today aren't fighting for colorblindness because we already mostly have that. 
I mean, if you look at American history, uh, desegregation, although restrictive covenants and so on persisted a bit beyond this, but desegregation took place in 1954. Uh, The Civil Rights Act, which made racism criminally and civilly illegal. If you feel you're discriminated against, you don't need to pick up a sign. You can go down to court, file a serious lawsuit. That was 1965. Uh, Pro-minority affirmative action which did not hurt me when I was applying to law school. I mean, that's 1967. That's now 52 years ago, you know, a human lifetime. Mm -hmm. So the basic idea that you should not, whether you're a white man or a black man, be an open racial bigot, that's been achieved. That's the reason Dr. King is venerated. Um, But in general today, when people say, well, I'm an activist, what I'm fighting for is racial equality, they don't mean keeping the Civil Rights Act on the books or something like that. They mean, for example, reparations or affirmative action pretty much forever. They're referring to something very different, and that's why they don't cite King. Uh, Their prophet would be more Malcolm X, I would say. (laughs) Well, by the way, at the end of his life, uh, Malcolm X kind of moved toward Martin Luther King Jr. anyway, and people don't seem to remember that either, but he did. So, uh, Dr. Riley, i got to ask you a question. When you appear on most shows, like radio shows, uh, do people just assume you're a white guy? I don't know. Uh, It depends. I don't usually ask. I've rarely asked the host, hey, what color do you think I am? Um, I've sometimes been introduced. (laughs) I'm sometimes either on very liberal black shows or on far-right conservative shows. I've been introduced as African-American Professor Will Riley just to give people kind of a baseline of what to expect. But uh, no, in general, I would suppose most people listening to me, I mean, a guy from Chicago named Will Riley or Will O'Reilly, they'd probably think I was a white guy, yeah. Mm, you're probably, um, but... I, yeah. I don't the know. Only I might depend on accent. Could depend on a bunch of things. Well, no, in my, in my particular case, when I talk to people because of the sound of my voice, some people think I'm black, but I'm actually white. And the reason, mm-hmm. the reason I know that is because as I talk to people, some people are very, very nice to me on the phone because they think I'm black. So they think they have to do that. Isn't that weird? That's I mean, a bit it's just strange. Odd. I mean, you, you can get that both ways. I've definitely, I've experienced on a few occasions increased hostility, doing things like drinking in small southern bars when I was in sales uh, because I was perceived as a minority guy. <laughs> I've right, also right. experienced kind of a weird over-politeness yeah. with kind of the mothers of girlfriends. That's what I'm talking who about. Wouldn't say, yep. yeah, who wouldn't say totally normal things, like you better get her back home by 10 because they felt it might oppress me. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it, it breaks out about evenly for me, I think. But yeah, my background, I'm, uh, I'm Irish-American and African-American. Well, see, that's good. That all works on the end. Uh, I love the beard, by the way. You, you get away with that beard, huh? In, in, in high school, in uh, college, I mean. Well, in, as a college professor, Kate, I will say one thing, actually. Um, I am glad that I teach in one of the historically black colleges when you get, although yeah. most small yeah. southern colleges would be about the same in terms of this. But in terms of extraordinary political correctness, if every one of our executives is a preppy black guy, we don't have to pretend to be incredibly woke or incredibly offended all the time. So um, I think, if anything, we're more conservative here, actually. That's, that's something that ties into the fact that I could write the book, still get tenure, there were no problems. Um, but in terms of the beard, college professors in general are given a lot of leeway. They're not the most fashionable group on the planet. Um, my job before college, actually, I was a sales director for M. Evans, which is one of the sort of standard boiler room trading floors in Chicago's LaSalle Street District. And there, I mean, everyone had to wear a you know, suit to work every day. Three-piece was preferred. So I, I've still got most of my clothes, so I can, I can dress up pretty well. But I've, I've grown the beard. I've even braided it for some local TV appearances. So you never know. Uh, <laughs> I, you're unbelievable, I'll tell you. i got to ask you a never, question. Never know what you get. You're a pretty broad-shouldered guy. You're, are you as big as you look? Uh, I just saw a, a, a bit of film on you on, on with uh, Tucker Carlson. Tom, you Tom, look like a Tom pretty, yeah. breaking news. We beat Louisville, 86-76. Oh. Sorry. 86. Don't look bring that up. That. Kentucky State. 
Kentucky right. State's close enough to Louisville, you know. Yeah, Minnesota's playing Louisville in the uh, NCAA tournament, and Minnesota just beat them 86-76. Okay. So that's, that's good news. Thank you. But in any case, Dr. Riley, I, I just think the whole thing is fascinating because the reason that I, I wanted to have you back for another segment, and I appreciate your time, sure, sure. is that you, you don't jump out there and go, oh, well, I've been victimized, and I'm this, and, and, and I, you know, I'm Irish, or I'm black, or I'm a, you don't say any of those things. You just you, you take Wilfred Riley on his face. You know what I mean? It's just you are who you are, and unless you do some research, I, nobody would ever know you're black uh, or white. They wouldn't. They would have no idea. I think that's a great position to take because it really doesn't to me. Because of where I grew up in the inner city, it doesn't matter to me. You know what I mean? I don't care. Yeah, I, I, I basically agree with that. I grew up in a large urban neighborhood myself. Well, this this again gets back into a lot of these issues of quote unquote white privilege and so on down the line. I guess my starting position would be that I don't see anyone in America in 2018 as oppressed. Um, at no, all. I think that's no. a ridiculous idea. I've actually done, I've never a military guy, but I've done uh, overseas kind of human service, like American field service. And if you go to Guatemala or you go to Senegal or some of the other places in the world, you become extremely happy with what you have when you get back home to your, you know, TV yes. and outdoor hoop and refrigerator that works. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So, yeah. but I actually, I did a study once. This is one of my conference papers. It was never one of the things I published as a big book, but I was genuinely curious. I'm a fairly good social scientist. So I asked a group of about 2,000 people a series of questions about privilege, and this ranged from, have you ever been beaten up by more than two people? Which, in fact, I have, and I suspect the urban people on the other side of the mic might have as well. But you two, do you know what right. frequent flyer miles are? But have you, <laughs> have you been drunk to do you know what frequent <laughs> yeah, flyer yeah. miles are? <laughs> yes, Did you have a car in high school? <laughs> so I, I had a hundred, hundred of these questions, and I asked a bunch of people of all races and ethnicities and so on what, to take this survey to score it. And I tried to measure what gives you privilege. And I found that if you take two identical guys, one white guy, one black guy, the white guy did on average score uh, about two points better, two points more privilege on the survey. But I also found that about 80% of privilege was just social class. Yeah. So if you were a white kid from Appalachia or from South Boston, I mean, I did this online, so I had quite a pool of people, um, your score might be a 20 Whereas if you were a black kid from an affluent Chicago suburb, your score would be a 70. You would say, yeah, I did have a car in high school. I have had an internship. You would go through this list of things. So in general, I don't tend to think that black people as a group or Asians or Jews certainly as a group are dramatically more disadvantaged than white people. I think you have to judge each person as an individual. So yep. the Irish and Italian inner city neighborhoods, for whatever reason, um, it's kind of cleared out. A lot of those people moved to the South, actually. So right now, if you look at the hood in major cities, that is mostly African-American, although now uh, somewhat Hispanic as well. So if someone says, well, I'm a guy that grew up in Cabrini Green, that might well indicate, that might well be a proxy for, I've had a tough life. But if you just say, I'm a minority person, well, that's 30% of the country. That doesn't really mean much of anything. So I don't, I don't yeah. tend to lead with, well, I'm brown, as opposed to, this is the book I wrote, what do you think of it? No, I think right. it's a great idea. You don't even, you don't even uh, uh, on the information I got, you don't even mention you're a doctor. I, I generally don't introduce impressive. myself to people. and Yeah, I mean, if I'm playing golf or basketball, I'm going out for a beer. I generally don't introduce myself to people as, you know, Dr. Wilfred Riley Esquire. <laughs> I've got a few titles, That, that would explain a, why I, you've been I, beat up by more than one person. <laughs> that was, like, that, that's what I do every time I meet someone. Um, I think it's wonderful. But I really do. I just, I have a question. People being if, normal if, and if, getting if, along, you mean? Or? Yeah, 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 I love it. It's do you, wonderful. Do you do speeches around the country at at, uh, at different universities and colleges? It looks like I'm going to. I mean, that's, that's become one of the sort of hot things for Good. the center-right speakers. Uh, ben Shapiro, Heather McDonald. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, yeah. a lot of people have uh, taken that route. I'm probably going to start in Kentucky. And again, I don't think speaking in Kentucky, there are going to be any interesting riots or anything like that. I think the audience will mostly you know, <laughs> listen and applaud. But you, you, there definitely is an entertainment factor if you get booked at, in Berkeley or even some of the schools I'd be asked to, Illinois, University of Illinois, Chicago. 
personally, I would be very tempted just to round up a bunch of friends from either my old neighborhood or, you know, local police and security forces and just move through the crowd and give the speech. I think there's, there's been a lot of respect <laughs> given to, there's been a lot of respect given to the heckler's veto on these campuses that I completely disagree with, where, you know, there'll be a chanting crowd surrounding the place where the speaker's supposed yep. to talk and so on. And it strikes me right. that either the speaker's friends or the cops could really disperse that group of 20 pretty easily. But, uh, I mean, obviously there's some legal restrictions on doing that. You want to run that by an attorney first. But I do hope to do, uh, do, hope to do a little a mini college tour. I'm, I just would think that like, if you tried to go talk uh, at the University of Minnesota, for instance, about your book, I think there'd be just I, I, I think they'd freak out. Oh, I don't God, even know. Yes. They oh, would yeah. just flip out because you're you're not agreeing with the narrative. And it's just it, really? it, it, it's hard for them to just grasp that there can. Oh, oh Minnesota is way that there might that. be another way of looking at things. It's just not possible. I don't think Minnesota is interesting in that our cities are. As liberal as you can get in the United States, whereas the oh, country yeah. is basically as conservative as you can get in the United States. So yeah, it's true. It, it really depends on where you go. It's a it's a different kind of deal. I'll tell you that. Best of the Tom Bernard podcast. on the best of coming up next we had a little bit of a comedy triple up with tone bell rojo perez and adrian washington all three in studio at the same time next on the best of the tom bernard podcast James Brown, ladies and gentlemen, the Godfather is whole. Thank you very much. Man, I um, I uh, I used to work for Capitol Records back in the day, from 1977 to 1982, and uh, James Brown at that time was on Polydor Records, mm-hmm. right? And this is like God, I, I don't even remember what year it was. It was mid 70s, like mid to late 70s, whatever. And so James wanted to sign a new deal with Polydor. The Godfather's soul needs to sign a new deal with Polydor, and they wouldn't give him the money he asked for. So he called President Carter at the time mm. and said, I need you to kick Polydor out of the country. <laughs> he wanted him kicked out of the country because they wouldn't pay him. <laughs> that's like, that, man, you, you, that's coming in real hot. You, you, you got to work up to that. Yes, that's, yeah, we should. Yes, exactly right. Like fired is yes, one thing, but out of the country? You want somebody to no, move and sell their house. <laughs> <laughs> he was unbelievable. I only that's, had to meet him one time. We were talking was, before we got amazing. on the air today. Like I was, I just finished that uh, that um, Mike Judge series that uh, Tales from the Tour Bus on Cinemax. And oh, they yeah, talk about yeah. all like the first season was like country folk singers like Neil Young and, and um, uh, I think they had Willie Nelson on there. And then the second season was mm-hmm. all like soul and funk. And then they, um, mm-hmm. when Bootsy Collins in the in the band that played for James Brown, one night they were getting uh, high on some acid. They they dropped a bunch of acid in what, some drink oh. they were drinking, and they were out back because they like to get high before the show. And James never got high before the show, and came back and grabbed the grabbed the cup and just drank the whole thing. But they didn't oh. they didn't want to tell him because they want to get in trouble. They go halfway through the performance, James freaks out. He goes, James freaks out. Now you got to watch the show if you haven't seen it. It's hilarious. James freaks out and just um uh like does his ha- does his arms like like uh like a circle over his head. Okay, like. His mm-hmm. hands are touching, and they go. The rest of the crowd started doing it for like five or ten minutes. Then James did it for another fifteen minutes, and everybody's like, "Man, what the heck is wrong with James Brown?" And then Booty Collins' the guitar turned into a snake, and so the rest of the band ran off. And James is like, "Man, y'all fired." <laughs> <laughs> And just put him on a plane Fire right there. Everybody. He was known for firing and fining people. Oh, oh yeah. Be finding you during, well, the, during the song, right? <laughs> he, they said he would flash like five, five, five at it, and that was a $15 fine. Yep, yep. That I, was it. I, I was better Turner than Wilson that. Pickett, though. Oh, yeah, I Turner did it too. too? <laughs> and Will, yeah. Yeah. Wilson Pickett shot his drummer once. <laughs> oh, 
Jesus. <laughs> Man, you know, if you, you missed right that arm. note. That's you, your old drummer. You can't you can't shoot somebody and then come back to work. <laughs> you shoot me. That's the old drummer. We don't work right. together no more. Right, the, you're pretty much into that business relationship. <laughs> you can push me down pretty some much steps. Wrapped the last up. two or three steps. You can push me down some steps. You push me at the top. We done. <laughs> You push me towards the bottom, I might forgive you. Hey, man, we had some drinks. You shoot someone, yeah, then you go, anybody else think we should change this song? <laughs> I do the playlist. God, can you even imagine James Brown high on acid? Oh, I can't even imagine. Man, that's got to be. I mean, because all those dudes were talking about, like, Bootsy Collins like, man, I don't remember the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> the so he was like, man, you got to tell me what happened between, like, 74 and 86. I, I, I'm not familiar. <laughs> And he ended up he ended up for a while with George Clinton, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah. With the George, and so, George Clinton was about it. So Oh George. But that was that prank that they pulled they on him out. when they uh, pulled his pants down when he was hanging from the, <laughs> from the spaceship. And now he's just wang out in front of <laughs> thousands of people. Wang out is so funny. I don't know if you could even wang say out. that, yeah. but that's really funny. <laughs> Penis sounded too professional. He said wang out. <laughs> Out. And they were and they were talking like because he wasn't ready. He was like he didn't mind. So then like the next day he had to he came. He was like when y'all start dropping the spaceship, I'm gonna get ready. So then he just came out butt naked, but he was already you know starting it up. Yeah. <laughs> You're not gonna embarrass me again. I'll show you. I got so, something to prove. So he gave him a little he gave him a little growth the next day. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> he said he already started it up. <laughs> Man, that's a great story. That's not going to make this show. It's going to get cut. Uh, oh, no, no, no. That's going to be on the show. That's Everybody in the world's going to hear that. Oh. That's, that's what they call wang time. <laughs> wang time. This segment was brought to you by, <laughs> by Wang Out. Oh, wang Out. <laughs> We just talking about chicken. Black people say Wang. Wang. The Wang. Come on down to George Clinton. Wang. Wang's a thing. That is very funny, though, man. Did, uh, you come out ready to go by removing your pants. Well, if you're going to do it, I'll show you how to do it. <laughs> Knocking over mic stands. <laughs> we got a special guest tonight in the building. <laughs> the newest member of the band. I got really, somebody very really special mature. I want to introduce y'all to. <laughs> that's why he started wearing robes. That makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. You can't put on pants yeah, when you're back on stage. You can't. That's too hard to no. get pants on while people clapping for you. <laughs> that, was, that was genius, though. You you gather together about 10 people, and you put out a bill that has five bands in it, and it's the same 10 people coming and going. Brides oh. of Funkenstein, Brucey yep. Collins. I can't make any bigger. Uh, you know, <laughs> Parliament, Funkadelic, all of them. They're yep. all the same people. That was brilliant. Wait, so keep we the money it. in the house. We got it five different checks. Right. Man, yeah. I need to get a five different I'm checks. trying to look at your face on this hockey mask. <laughs> he just pulled up the picture. Wait a minute. Why don't I get to see the picture? You've seen my mask, goalie mask. Yeah, I have. You've it looks seen like I'm your angry. face. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, but I want to see how you shave looking at that. <laughs> I want to see how I look oh, on JB. you. <laughs> it's actually, I need to tell you something, Jamie. What's that? Yeah. Um, I'm standing a couple like earlier in the week. I'm standing around, and these th- three guys came up, and and I didn't know they were talking about, this, but but my wife spotted them. Catherine spotted them, and one of the guys walks up to me, and goes, "Are you Ian McShane?" And I said, <laughs> "No, I'm not." He, you guys know who Ian McShane is? I can't place it. Another show, name? You know, uh, you show Deadwood. Yep. He's a guy who talks oh, yeah. like this. Yep, he's, yep. he's like the, the owner of the of the, of the uh, bar. Yep, I know exactly who you're talking about. Now, I'm kind of happy that I look like a, a movie star, but I'm not happy that he's nine years older than I am. But other than that, it <laughs> yeah, was a very are, pleasant deal. That's like, that's, that's a, that's a um, cordially ageist. <laughs> yes, it is cordially. You know, let me ask you guys a question about racism in America. Here's the problem I have with racism, particularly in America. Other than you itself. Have 50, other than itself, yes. You have 50 different states with 50 different can, brands of, of racism, right? Yep. And the federal government's trying to keep it all under control. How can you keep 50 different kinds of racism under control. It's impossible. I mean, they, they right? do, I feel like they're doing a good job, though. 
Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, maybe I, people have grown up. That'd be nice. I tell people like this. I said, racist is just a word that gets thrown around a lot, too. Like, everything ain't racist. Like, to me, Minnesota's prejudice. It's not racist. Mississippi's racist. I agree. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree. Huge mm-hmm. difference. And people kind of look like, what do you mean? So go to Mississippi. It's, oh, it's, man. Oh, yeah, it's a whole different. It's a whole nother world. <laughs> man, I was down in Mississippi because I have a lot of family in there, too. Like, a lot of older okay. folks in my family yep. that either mm-hmm. left St. Louis or Chicago yeah. moved back down to Mississippi. And uh, this was like 96, 97. And it was like, it's, it's it was crazy then. Yeah. <laughs> but even to think about it now, so we're talking 20 years ago, yeah. and I'm uh, I'm in a family reunion, and everybody under like 40, 45, 15 to like 45 went to the bowling alley. It's probably 30 of us. Okay. And we go to this bowling alley, and we walk in like, hey, do you guys like have two, three lanes maybe? And they're like, uh, yeah, we're not going to be able to let y'all bowl. And it was like, oh, is, they're all taken? They're like, no. Nope, right? And we're like, what's the problem? And they're like, what? come on, you know the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and literally, they called the cops, and they made us leave. We we never spent any money. Yeah. We are just there. We're like, we're in a family. We all were in the same t shirt. <laughs> We're just here for no problems for a reunion. So then after that, we just went, like half of us went to a hotel and just bought liquor and weed. And it was like, we could have been doing the right thing. <laughs> And then yeah, he drove us to have right. to break the law. Break the law. <laughs> yeah. My cousin. Now, uh, how long ago was that? That was like 96, 97. My cousin said he was. Really? Uh, yeah. Th- like four years ago, five years ago, my cousin said him and like, all professional businessmen, they all brought their wives out, brought them to this <laughs> restaurant. That a dude told him like, hey, man, um, you can't eat in here. He was like, well, I see tables. He's what? like, nah. He said, look around. He said, it's not an accident that none of you guys are in here. He said, if you want to go around really? the back, you pick it up. He said, but this is my establishment. I got a right to refuse anybody. He said, you guys are not getting in here. Now, now, now <clears> that that is. With that kind of racism is that's you know exactly where somebody stands. Right. You know, yeah. you know you really that's what I asked myself, What were y'all doing? If, if you're willing to turn down money for your business, right. this is just my. I'm leaving in 45 minutes. If you're willing to turn down money to keep your business open because you hate us, I got to give it to you. That's, that's real. Look, that's commitment right that's, there. Definitely committed. That would be commitment. But we that never would even. Be commitment. You don't see marriages that strong. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, Tom, yeah. we never uh, did our fa- comics that got us started. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I go first, and this is, but but I'm talking, I'm going to say Cosby, but I'm talking about Cosby as the comic from himself. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was, the, that, was that that version yeah. of the dude, like, who could tell a story and give you all the details, and, like, that's why I tell stories now, and I think that's my favorite. I guess the, the dude who influenced me to go, like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, I understand. Mine was Cosby, but after the stuff. <laughs> You're unbelievable. No. You're unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, oh, oh, he went to go get it. Oh, man, we're never going to get through this segment. He brought the mask in person now. All right. So now, if you're listening, you got to check my Instagram if you think this helmet don't exist. If you don't think this hockey mask That's crazy. He got the hair on it and everything. Um, oh, my God. Wow. Tom, I think you're a good-looking dude, but this mask, this this, ho- this hockey, uh, this goalie mask does not show it. It's not showing it. The, did you know he eyes. was doing this, Tom? Uh, no, he did it and then told me. Okay. <laughs> Mine's Richard Pryor just because uh, uh, what he's done for it. Like, I, I knew I shouldn't have been watching it, and that kind of turned me on to it, too. Did, yes. So that that's who, uh, even when I got started, I didn't even know how I was going to do it. But I remember watching that, what I grew up on, watching Richard and Eddie. Like, I never <clears throat> was a Cosby fan because I knew Cosby more from the Cosby show, which didn't seem realistic to me. In Mississippi, so Richard was the one my uncles reminded me of. It's cr- it, that's yeah. crazy to, yeah. to to believe in Harry Potter more than the Cosby Show. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that. That's, that. You know what? This that's is the fantasy that gets you. <laughs> I'm telling you flat out what makes me angry about this, and I've told Adrian this before, and everybody in the show knows this. I do not like the fact my favorite comedian of all time, Richard Pryor, and I can't even say the name of his first two albums. Oh man, I know yeah. exactly. Yep. Me off. You better not. I can't do. <laughs> <laughs> you better you know, not. North side or not. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, north side or not. <laughs> But I mean, if I go buy it at like a vinyl store now, you have to go in. Do you have a copy of? Um, Man, you gotta get that on Amazon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, is a, that is a private purchase. You gotta walk in. Okay, I, you have any of Richard Pryor's earlier stuff? <laughs> <laughs> and you and you have to clean your you know, his, you his, got pioneer, Richard, his pioneer work. Yeah. You got Richard after the Rat Pack. You got that one. <laughs> and you have to clean uh, your your like, browsing history right. after you buy yeah. it on Amazon. I got a joke about. Oh no, wait a minute. I got wait a minute. I'm going on Amazon right now. My and favorite, see if they- my favorite bit on that album is uh, when he's at the pool hall and he gets in in a fight with a dude with a brick. <laughs> Oh, and he, yeah. he was like, man, you got to trouble with a dude. He goes, hey, baby, I will hit you with a brick. <laughs> he 
like, man, this, this joke is serious. Uh, I got a joke about okay. that, Tom. When you say cl- clear your browsing history, I always tell if you got a black friend and white friend, I find him at a show and I say, ask your white friend for his phone and just go to his text and start trying to text the N-word. I said, if it pops up, he's been talking about you in that manner. Because that, word, <laughs> <laughs> that word ain't programmed in nobody's phone. <laughs> I said, now they're going to try to Ooh. trick you and tell you it was Spotify, but Spotify ain't got nothing. Just out here text. texting like you, Jim, from, <laughs> right. from Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> Why did he capitalize the ER? <laughs> Emphasize. Damn. Oh my God. I am I am on Amazon right now and you can buy that big in is crazy. Super big in, but I don't see bicentennial in. They, it but, says right. But super it, is it, there. It's, super it's, is there. Super is there, and the whole word is there. Mm. And that big in is crazy. The whole thing is there, which was the first album I ever bought by Richard Pryor. I, I that amazes me that 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 Amazon has that up on their web. It's like hey, whoa. You can still rent the Cosby still Show too. <laughs> <laughs> you, can just, you can get you season know, one if you, you really want. You can still you can still get R. Kelly. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know for, for not for long, but you know, uh, I will tell that that i'm sorry to admit this but that bill cosby thing was in a way my fault because i finally after years and years because i felt the same way i thought he was hilarious and i finally got to meet him after years and years and my wife and our daughter and he didn't go for some reason i don't know why but we went backstage to sit and talk with with bill cosby and he was the nicest guy in the world we took a picture with him he wanted to, he said why don't we take a picture together all the rest of it i swear to god about an hour later it all came out i was like what I mean, the same weekend I mean, I <laughs> Oh my God! It was unbelievable that almost immediately that stuff started coming out right after I met I met my guy. I, I, just, I thought the world of him, and he was you a nice pre- guy. In the he's world. probably sitting in prison thinking about it. everything was going good till I met that white dude. <laughs> <laughs> he's just planning if I ever get out of here. <laughs> You better stay in Florida. Uh, delete that. <laughs> I cannot believe they put the entire word up there, but I suppose if they're selling it, that's what people want to buy. Yeah, then people want the original. <laughs> I want the original. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, two shows. Tomorrow night, two shows. A show on Sunday at 7 o'clock as well. You guys are amazing. This has been just a, a ball. Thank you so much. Yeah, for same time. here. Thank, Thank you guys we, for having us. This, this is worth not going back to sleep for, trust me, because normally it, we like, man, snap time. But this, <laughs> this is great, man. Uh, and let's, and let's do it. So. If we can get people into it, let's do it next time we're in town. Let's do the, the live podcast. Why wouldn't we? Would you? Yeah, are you good. down we'll, for that? We'll go to the house. I would love to do that. That'd be fun. phenomenal. <laughs> God, it would be fun. Get an audience in there. Woo! We'd have a good time. <laughs> 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 he had them with the Rex Flair. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you didn't slap anybody God. in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, fellas. We'll be back with the family. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. <laughs> and Adrian Washington on The Best Of. Coming up next, closing out the show, we're opening up the vault. All the way back to episode 345. And if this doesn't give you a hint, it should to the great Baron Von Raschke from the golden age of wrestling. Next on The Best Of... Okay, you turkey nuts! Gather around! Now, do I call you Baron? Do I call you Mr. Von Raschke? Just don't call me Johnson! <laughs> of course you can call me! I'm a school teacher, you can call me Mr. Raschke! Just miss. I miss that. You know, who wears a garter? I. You can't take medicine for a garter. No, you can't. Let me tell you something, Marty O'Neill. I. That's all you need to know, too, Shelby. Yeah, Shelby. Baron, please don't beat me up. Not again. <laughs> he hurt me really bad about five years ago. 
Did he body slam you? He did. Oh, all right. When I hear that voice, it brings back such great memories for me. I kind of teared up hearing that voice because, oh, I tell you, you tune in every weekend. Everybody's getting fired up to go Saturday night at the St. Paul Auditorium. We're going to head over there, and it's going to be a cage match. (laughs) Oh, it was the, I loved it, and I loved every minute. Baron, I got to tell you, or Mr. Von, or Mr. Rashke, Hair. I could call you. Hair Rashke. Hair. Call me Baron. I'll call you Baron. Okay, I'll call you Baron. I also answered to hey, you, and honey. Now, where are you a teacher, by the way? I, I, I was a full-time teacher in Omaha, Nebraska. That's what I thought. That's in West Germany, you know. <laughs> it's way west of Germany, but that's where it is. It's way west of Germany. And then uh, when I broke into wrestling business, when I moved to uh, to uh, Minneapolis, I uh, I substitute taught in the Minneapolis system and uh, to make ends meet. And uh, and then uh, after I got out of wrestling, and uh, I substituted in, in various parts of the state, uh, uh, Burnsville and Prior Lake. We lived in Prior Lake at the time. I substituted there, and then we moved to. Uh, a little town called Lake George, way up north, between uh, Park Rapids and Bemidji. Oh, sure. And we owned a wigwam, which yes. was a store. Anyway, it was the first time I could walk to work. We lived right behind it. Anyway, uh, that's I a wonderful. I still have substituted up there in Park Rapids, Bemidji, and Laporte, Minnesota. I will tell you this: when I was a kid, my only good memory of my paternal grandfather, my father's father. The only good memory I have of him was sitting with him watching all-star wrestling, watching you wrestle when I was a little kid. Other than that, I thought the guy was a total jerk. <laughs> well, there's no, no account for taste, is there? <laughs> I good taste in one thing. That was very true. He was one of the people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, you guys had to know how big a, I mean, the, the size of uh, that uh, that. The impression that you left on young um, young boys and young girls all across the uh, United States as a professional wrestler, it was all the way up to tell you the truth until I was, God, probably 30 years old. I never missed professional wrestling. I, I watched it every weekend because it was always entertaining. And I just, and I don't mean to insult anyone here, but I just don't think it's as entertaining as it used to be because you guys had a deal it was always entertaining it was funny it was scary you were very athletic uh, it was just, I, I, maybe it was just because i was a kid then and i you know when the wwe came along or wwf at the time i was older so but but i just thought watching you guys wrestle whether it was you or the crusher or go down the list it was it was so much fun you brought so much fun to wrestling you had to know that didn't you well, we always tried to make it interesting, and of course, we uh, we wanted to subsist, so we did our best. And uh, it was all ad lib, and we just uh, went with how we how we felt. And the guys that uh, some of the people that you mentioned, like the Crusher, he uh, he was uh, he developed that character. He was he was the Crusher, and uh, Mad Dog Vashon, who we just lost. Last we week. just lost him. Yeah, he was uh, he was another one who. Uh, that uh, wrestled, wrestled professionally. He was an amateur wrestler in Canada. He was on an Olympic team and won the British uh, Empire Games. And but he, but then he was a he was a professional wrestler for fourteen years before uh, he became the Mad Dog. <laughs> it happened after a riot, and the promoter Don Owens in uh, Oregon came came out afterwards, and the police had cleared the arena and the smoke had settled and uh, he said Maurice Maurice Vajan you're going to make me lose my license you were like a mad dog out there <laughs> there you go and from then on he called him mad dog and it got over and uh, he made a lot he made a lot of uh, a lot of um, important uh, uh well, he was just great. That's how he was. I mean, it's the <laughs> only way to put he was my it. He was friend and mentor, and he was. A- Baron, what happened when uh, the kids you were teaching realized that you were Baron von Raschke? How did you deal with that in the classroom? 
Well, in Burnsville and uh, Prior Lake, I was still uh, active in wrestling a little bit. I uh, just before I had toned my uh, career down. I was staying in uh, near home, and I I wasn't uh, gone on the road a, a lot. So that's when I started to do the uh, substitute teaching again, and I'd go to uh, <clears throat> the, one of the Burnsville junior highs, and the first week I I, I would show up uh, because it some of them had seen me on TV. The word would get around. And uh, after a couple of hours, they were asking me for autographs. And when I was standing in the hall, as they were passing between classes, can I have your autograph? Can I have your autograph? And, you know, and I would usually accommodate them if I could. And, uh, and but then after, uh, you know, three or four or five weeks, the uh, professional wrestler Baron Von Rasch turned into the very dull, very, very serious. Mr. <laughs> I got to tell you this time, I don't know how well you know uh, Baron, but uh, we did a lot of events together and uh, did some stuff down in Marshall and and uh, for the Mustangs. And uh, this, despite that reputation and uh, that awful demeanor that he presented, this incredibly mean, wild man, sure. the nicest human being I've ever met. What happened between now and then? <laughs> Tell me, you still love me. <laughs> I never did learn to play golf, so sorry, Don. <laughs> we, had, we were always hoping that you'd get on the other foursome. <laughs> I just, couldn't you just put the claw on the club and everything would go sw- swimmingly from there? No, no, no. I, I, uh... I always had to work at everything I got as far as uh, athletic skills. So yeah, that was it. Did but you, you know what he and did? I never you know, learn, he, learn that particular sport. Even after many years of retirement, um, the room would be filled with uh, people who were children. They're adults now, right? <laughs> and and they're all in there, and they're bankers, and they're lawyers, and and they're they're teachers, and and what? Uh, yeah, they're just every walk of life. <laughs> and then uh, the uh, the Baron would walk in, and, and he would be just himself. He'd be Mr. Rashke. But, of course, they'd want him to go through uh, the the scenario. They'd want him to perform, yeah. to be Hello? that guy. Hello. Oh, can you hear us? Yes, I got uh, oh, yeah. I got cut off, but I think I did it myself. So. Oh, all right. I, I was just saying that when you would uh, show up. Andy's hand. Okay. <laughs> you would you would show up at these events and um, and you were uh, being yourself, you're Mr. Rashke, but then uh, all of the adults in the crowd had watched you as children, and uh, every time you had to come in, you had to do the Baron von Rashke. You had to do the entire act. Did it ever get tired, or did you love the performing? Um, actually. Uh I, I, I loved everything I did in the ring around, you know, when I was expected to be the Baron. I always tried to be the best Baron I could be. And, uh, 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 I did enjoy it. Yes, I did. It was uh, creative and it was very, uh, very satisfying to me. And you were talking about your grandfather, your evil grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh,. Uh, that was Tom, I think. Anyway, uh, it was. Yeah, uh, it's so gratifying now uh, as I uh, get out of character here a little bit. But uh, so many people come up to me, and the first thing out of their mouth is, "Oh, it was such a great thing, you know, because we could we all get gather, go over to the grandpa's house and watch TV, and you guys would come on. And it was so much fun, and it was just was a nice time. I sit on my grandpa's lap, and I did it." Uh, and it was, uh, you know, that's uh, that's like a warm fuzzy to me every time I hear it because, and uh, you know, mo- most of them didn't have evil step, step- grandfathers or whatever. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I will tell you something. I, I uh... anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it was a great uh, uh, experience here in Minnesota and around the country. It was just, I get it for everywhere I go. So, uh. Baron, I. I know you've been asked this a million times, but I don't know the answer to the question, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Did you invent the claw, or was that given to you? That was just a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, uh, you you know, uh, I I was... uh, There were 
many wrestlers before I, I got into the wrestling professional wrestling business that had a claw in professional uh. wrestling. So no, I did not invent it. But uh, I, I learned many le years later, uh, a friend of mine, I, I saw him at the uh, National Duels about uh, five years ago, six years ago, and he's since passed away. But uh, uh, such a good friend, I can't think of his name right now. Anyway. That happens. <laughs> so close. But he was an Olympic champion, and he wrestled for o Oklahoma State many years ago and he was uh, uh doug blueball there it is doug blueball came to me uh he was uh, a great cha a great champion and amateur wrestler 154 pound guy and uh after he'd uh much later when i when i was in college he'd come up to nebraska and work work out with us when he was uh uh done with all of his career and uh, anyway uh, he always he taught me a few moves, but he always held back on one. And I, we were at a party down in Iowa where the national duels were. And afterwards, he was he said to me, he says, "You know that claw you use? I used that in college. <laughs> you know that little little piece of fat that's on everybody, no matter how much they got weight. We call them love handles, right? Yeah. Right. I grabbed that, and the guy would turn like you no, know, he was." <laughs> he was using the claw way before I was. <laughs> well, you know, you used it best, though. Did he goose up as well as you? Yeah. Well, he, he didn't have the he didn't have the uh, facial expression. No, the facial expression. You know what? You're absolutely right about that. It's all in the way you hold your lip. Actually, the facial expression was just fabulous. There's no question about that. I, when I was 16 years old, living in North Minneapolis, I had a girlfriend that lived in South Minneapolis. Another whore. So I'm on, say, she sounds like a bitch. So on Saturday nights, I'd have to hop the number five bus, which was the uh, Fremont-Bloomington bus, go down to uh, Bloomington and Lake Street. And then the number 21 bus, the Selby-Dale bus, would come along. Oh, Selby-Dale. I'd, I'd ride that down to the 32nd Street and then walk to her house. But on Saturday nights... Everybody on that Selby Dale bus was going to the St. Paul Auditorium. And they were all putting a claw on each other, putting each other in headlocks. Everybody on the bus talked like this. It was I gave the driver a quarter and he wants more money. Everyone on the bus talked. All those pencil neck geeks. His favorite term for me. Pencil, pencil neck geek. Don show me the pencil that neck was, geek. That was a crusher, I'm sorry. <laughs> Close enough. Uh, but seriously, every Saturday night it was so entertaining because they would literally try to put figure four leg locks on each other right there in the aisle of the bus. And the bus driver would go, Will you guys sit down back there? Don't tell me what to do. It See, was they don't, they, people don't pay attention. <laughs> Every week I heard Marty O'Neill say it. Oh, Marty. Not try this at home. <laughs> or especially at bus stops. <laughs> or bus stops. More importantly. One of the great, uh, you know, it was a, like a mystery to me when I was a little kid because Wally Carbo would come out. Uh, Marty, I was just over at the uh, Dykeman Hotel. <laughs> Remember when he lived at the Dykeman Hotel? That's where the office was, yeah. <laughs> He came out talking to that. He went back and cried when they tore it down. Oh God, yes, I, okay. I could understand that the Dykeman Hotel. But he would. There's got to be fines and suspensions. <laughs> it was just the whole thing. What from Wally Carbo to Marty O'Neill, all the wrestlers. It was just a, a fabulous show every week, and you'll never, uh, never lose that memory. Oh, somebody, by the way. Sent in a copy of remember the Crusher by the Novas. Do the Crusher? Oh was, yeah. It was oh, yeah. a. I, I, I heard that record. That uh, I heard. That, I've heard that song several times. Oh yeah. my God! It was just. It just. This stuff brings back such great memories to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I suppose as you said, as you traveled around, everybody, everybody just loved it. It was. It was tremendous entertainment, and I just don't think it's as good. It's maybe it's too big a business now, or I don't know what it is, but it's. These guys well, are just not as entertaining as you guys were. Well, they do so. It's a lot different. It's just a lot different, and uh, uh, it's it's uh, got a different focus. And uh, they do make a lot more money than I ever did. But uh, oh, they make a lot of money. Uh, God bless them for that. But uh, anyway, it's just a, a completely different, different kind of thing. It's it's uh, a little bit sad to me, but. Uh, 
Uh, you know, we were like uh, uh, family entertainment. You, yes. You, you weren't afraid to watch the thing with your kids. Nowadays, I wouldn't let my kids watch it, and they're in the 40s, so. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have any success at that, but anyway. I understand that, though. Yeah, yeah it's it's a whole different deal. One of the it's, things it's that I wanted to... like adult entertainment. Baron, I, I wanted to say this, and I, I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but um, I probably know 20 uh, of your former students... And some of them are, yes, and some of them, you know, 45 years old. And uh, and they unanimously, unanimously chose you as their favorite teacher of all time. And not because you did anything about wrestling during the classroom, because you were just a great teacher. Oh, well, I, I thought maybe I was too easy on them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a possibility. <laughs> That's a possibility. Uh, well, that's very nice of you to say, Don. I appreciate that, but uh, I just did the best I could. Wow, you're a great teacher. Andy no has the song up it. if you want to hear a clip. Oh, you've got it? I think so. He's going to sing it for us. He's, and, <laughs> and he's, and he's going to do his own version of uh, one, Do two, the Crusher. That's all. How long ago was that out? That was forever ago. Sixty-seven, maybe. Really? Sixty-six. That long. Baron, you think that was about sixty-six, sixty-seven, wasn't it? Uh, it was about the time I was just starting to my pro career. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. One of my favorite things in that song is because I was a fourteen-year-old kid, and because of the depth of my voice, I could sing that song. So I'm on the first. You take your wrist. And you put it on your hip. <laughs> just the greatest. In 1964. 64, so I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I just It was so much fun because there was music and there was television and there were wrestling matches. And it was just. Uh, and I just want to tell you again how, how entertaining you were and all the guys were. And it just, my life wouldn't be the same without you, I'll tell you that. Well, well, well I, I, I really enjoyed everything I did and it was a lot of fun. I... I uh, I uh, try not to. I try not to be the Baron twenty four hours a day. So, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, exhausting. It, yeah. it was a fairly balanced life. Hey Baron, did did you get a chance to uh, wrestle much outside of the uh, sort of Bernd Gagne, uh Nick Bockwiggle circle? Did you get out? Did you ever get a uh, a chance to get in matches with Dick the Bruiser, Wilbur Snyder, Farmer oh. Jones? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I wrestled. Uh, uh, I met my lovely wife uh, Bonnie. Uh, we we uh, we got we got married in 1967, and I, I broke into wrestling in 1966. I was up here in Minneapolis. I was teaching school. I lived with two uh, two other guys who had just started uh, full time teaching careers. Uh, Charlie Coffee, an amateur wrestler, a friend of mine that I was in the army with, and uh, and uh, Tom Lampy, who wrestled at. Charlie wrestled at Minnesota, University of Minnesota. Tom Lambie wrestled at Mankato, and we were three uh, three teachers. And um, and uh, anyway, uh, Charlie Charlie's a 137 pounder, but tougher in nails. And he was also very. Uh, I was always a shy person, and he was always going around knocking on doors and meeting girls and. <laughs> he met a girl. He says, "You got two roommates. You guys want to go meet them?" And I just, "Okay, we'll go." You know, just, just to just to get him off our backs. And I met I met my wife that way. We lived in the same car, apartment complex, several buildings in a row, out on the strip. Anyway, uh, we met. We got married, and we moved first from uh, Minneapolis uh, uh, out in the Richmond, Rich, uh, Richfield area to. Uh, to the Lake Calhoun area in a small apartment. And we, from there, uh, by then I'd kind of been, uh, I'd met Matt Dagvason. <laughs> well, he told me, yeah, but at that time I was just little Jimmy Rasky from Nebraska and I I couldn't have an interview. Marty O'Neill couldn't, he was a great interviewer. He couldn't squeeze, squeeze an interview out of me for anything. So, uh, but anyway, 
Mad Dog walked by the by the uh, control room one time, and I was in there hiding and watching the wrestling matches. And he said you'd make a good German, and he did it two or three weeks in a row. And anyway, then he finally asked me to go go up and be his partner in Montreal. He was going back to Montreal, and I said sure. And so I took my new bride, and we went up there, and that's where I became the Baron. And uh, little Jimmy Rasky was left behind, and uh, I learned to, I could interview. And uh, anyway, uh, under the Mad Dog's uh, tutelage, I became, Vern Gagne started me out, but Mad Dog polished me off, and uh, I became, uh, I guess, a talent in the business. And uh, from there, we moved to Toledo, Ohio, to Dallas, Texas, uh, uh, to uh, Indianapolis. To back to Minnesota, then to Connecticut. There was a New York under the old uh, McMahon, and uh, sure. then down to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Anyway, we lived, you know, a year here, a year there, then several years here, several years there. And uh, poor Bonnie didn't know what she was getting into. But no, but we we've been happily married for five years. And, that's not too bad out of 46, is it? Yeah, you know, five, happily <laughs> yeah. married, five years. Now, Baron, I, one question I do have for you, if you don't mind. Uh, how tall are you? I'm exactly four inches taller than my hair. <laughs> slightly under 6'4". Slightly under 6'4", slightly, slightly because you, you were very tall for oh, that era, guy. weren't you? Big. Still oh, is. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like Nick Bachwinkle was probably what five ten or eleven. No, he's about six feet. He's about almost six. Oh, he's about uh, almost six feet. Mad Dog and Crusher, they were they were they were shorter. They were shorter, but yeah, for uh, back nasty, in your era, very nasty, very nasty. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I, I just remember you towering over everybody else. It's like, yeah, God, he's a lot. Because, you know, to a kid watching it, the crusher looked like he was, you know, six foot six and weighed about uh, 320. Yeah. yeah. But then you came out and was like, well, he can't be that tall because Baron Von Raschke must be seven foot two. If that's, if that's <laughs> I would have played basketball. Yeah, so play basketball. But then I couldn't dribble or shoot, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Not a lot of great German I became an amateur wrestler. My brother was a basketball player, so I wanted to be like my older brother. and Foolishly went out for the basketball team, but I couldn't. I was a little fat, chubby kid. <laughs> I couldn't do either one, so I went out for wrestling the next year. Anyway. It all worked out. Baron, we have to get you back on the show again. It's very, very nice of you to share some of your afternoon with us and early evening with us. We really appreciate your time, sir. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, visiting with you people. They're very nice. Very nice. Good talking to you again, Jim. All right. Don Shelby. <laughs> Don Shelby, Tom Bernard. <laughs> Is that Catherine back there? I think I saw her peeking around. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I did my homework. Anyway, did, yeah. uh, I think that is all you need to know. That is all you need to know. Baron Von Raschke, ladies and gentlemen. The true gentleman. What a great guy. Wonderful. <laughs> trumpets because the winner is dead but these clips are most definitely alive and well in this episode of the best of the tom bernard podcast brought to you as always by bradshaw and bryant great clips this week Wilfred riley tone bell rojo perez adrian washington and baron von raschke Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next week.